All right. Well, if you found the notes, uh, I've got them for you there on the on your table. Anybody need an extra one? We should have some around. Um, and if you're a guest with us, we are honored, honored, really honored to have you here with us. We are following these Torah portions uh, that the Jewish people around the world follow. Uh, we've made our way back around to uh, Genesis. We are now in Genesis chapter, starting in verse 18. And this one is entitled where uh, God appears to Abram. And um, according to the Jewish uh, sages, they estimate that this was, and I brushed up against this last week, that this was uh, three days uh, after his circumcision. And uh, God shows up, and we're picking up here in Genesis 18.1. I'm going to run through this pretty quick tonight. Uh, we're going to try to cover everything, but there's a timeline in here that I think is so important to see, um, and it is so encouraging. You know, I mentioned this last week also, before I start reading this, uh, that the Bible shares with us basically raw truth. We're going to get these, the story of these people with all the warts, lies, deception, all the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there is this great story in here about Abraham offering up Isaac uh, on the altar. Everybody here sort of familiar with that story? You should be. Um, yet there's some things that happen <clears throat> around that and uh, right after this that is, um, it's kind of mind-boggling. And sometimes our perception of what has happened um, might not be exactly true simply because, well, we read the Bible too fast. We need to slow down and read it in, read it in context. Um, and uh, you should have more than one version. It just will help if you've got more than one version because when you're trying to translate it from one language into another, sometimes you have to just kind of put, pick, if you will, the lesser of two evils or whatever to try to make certain things sound right. Anyways, <clears throat> um, so I want to pick up here in uh, Genesis 18 with verse 1, 1 through 3 here. where it, This is where this one gets this title. It says, And Yahweh appeared to him in the, uh, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, where he was sitting in the tent of the door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked and saw three men standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the, the, door, the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, Yahovah, if I have found favor in your eyes, please do not pass your servant by. So this is where I want you to see... Um, a difference, and I, I underlined it for you here and highlighted it, where uh, it's the name of God here in verse 3. This is why having different versions is important. None of them are perfect. Okay? None of them are perfect. So I like using this version because it has uh, the proper names and all that in here. Um, the word here where they have Yahovah is really just the word Lord. Um, it says in verse 1 that Yahweh, uh, God, the creator of the universe, reveals himself. He shows up here to Abram. Abram's or Abraham's reply to him is, Oh, my Lord, 
Uh, if I have found favor in your eyes, please do not pass your servant by. He's not really using his uh, proper name here, but this particular version decided to use that. Um, and I'm not pointing that out to say it's a bad version. I'm just saying once again, have multiple different versions in front of you. And when you see something, you might just want to look at all the other different versions and just compare a few things. But anyhow, this is when God shows up. Uh, and Abraham, in the story just prior to this, he's been circumcised. He's old. Um, and the idea here is that it seems like God is showing up uh, to, if you will, confirm this covenant with Abraham, not so much to check out Abraham and see what, if he's done what he said he would do. He already knows he's done uh, what God had commanded him to do. I think it's more of the confirmation of showing to Abraham, we're in this now. Because he says something right after this that's absolutely mind-boggling. Because when you jump down at the bottom of the page here in your notes, in verse 9, he says, and he said to him, where is Sarah, your, your wife? And he said, see, in a tent. And he said, I shall certainly return to you according to the time of life. And see, Sarah, your wife, is to have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah was past the way of women, meaning she, she couldn't have children. Uh, she's about 90 years old, 89 years old about this time. <clears throat> um, and it says in verse 12, And Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my master being too old or old also? And Yahweh said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I truly have a child since I am old? Turn the page. And then it says, is any matter too hard for Yahovah? You might want to underline that because we're going to come back to that in a little bit. <clears throat> he says, at the appointed time, I am going to return to you according to the time of life. And Sarah is to have a son. So he says, listen, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back in about a year. I'm going to come back a year from now at this appointed time according to the time of life. So how long does it, is, how long does it take to have a baby when a woman gets pregnant? Y'all can say it out loud, right? It takes what? What? Okay, 40 weeks. I'm, I'm dealing in months. It takes nine months, right? You hold on to that. So it takes about nine months for a woman after she becomes pregnant to have a child. And God is telling Abram, says, look, your wife laughed. He laughed earlier. She's laughing. She's like, oh, I didn't laugh. I go, yeah, you did laugh. That's okay. Uh, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him pretty much laughter, Yitzhak. Um, so <clears throat> you jump down to verse 17. This is, so at first he says, I'm going to come back in a year and Sarah's going to have a son, your son. And then it moves from that to verse 17 where it says, and Yahweh said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Folks, I want you to notice that it, it's at this point up until now, I mean, God's been revealing Himself to Abraham and all this stuff, and Abraham's been doing certain things. Has he been making mistakes already? Yes. He's about to make it again. We thought he learned his lesson. 
No. But, but this is where God is about to tell Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, this whole area of Sodom. Where did Lot go? Lot went down to Sodom, right? <clears throat> the area was conquered by the kings. Abraham goes out and delivers them. And Lot goes where? He goes back down into Sodom. Okay? Abraham has done these certain things. He has this uh, circumcision. God shows up. And now you see this personal, if you will, intimate relationship where God becomes, if you will, a man. He's seen as a man. Was this a manifestation or what? I think, it was, I think they were real human beings that God revealed himself as a human being. He gave them food to eat. I'm not going to dive into all that. The point is, God is standing there talking to him. That's what I want you to see. Don't want to get bogged down if it was real flesh or not. God is standing there talking to him, and he says, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? In other words, he's looking at a man that he has chosen out of all the people of the earth that I'm going to create a nation from this man, and through that nation, I'm going to prove myself to be the unique God of all gods. So you got the creator of the universe that started everything that is standing at a moment in time with one human being that he's going to use that human being to prove to the world that he truly is God. That's pretty powerful, right? And while he's standing there, he says, should I hide from you what I'm about to do? Wow. That took, takes me right back to the garden. When God is walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve before sin, communing and talking, there's nothing hidden. Sin hadn't entered the world. They were part of this, if you will, divine council on earth representing God here. Crazy. That gets all messed up. God is in the middle of this plan and he's standing there with Abraham and saying, should I hide what I'm about to do? No, I'm not going to hide it. And then look what he says. Since Abraham is certainly, not maybe, not I'm hoping that this is, this is not, I'm planning on doing something. He says this is certain. Since Abraham is certainly going to become a great and mighty nation. And all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in, in mine. And I give you this so you can mark it up. But I would even say you should write in your Bible. It'll be okay. You're not going to go to hell if you write in your Bible. I literally used to think that and wouldn't do it. And I grew up and it was like, it's a tool, okay? Don't worship the book. Worship the writer of the book. Amen? I got a mm, -mm, -mm. A Amen? <laughs> okay, so uh, I've highlighted all this because this is fundamentally important. He says, I have known him. He's, he's going to say why he's not going to hide what's about to happen with Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes, because I've known you. I am intimately aware and in communion with you, Abraham. And then look at what he says. For I have known him. So that, in order that, he commands his children and his household after him to guard the way of Yehovah. Wow. 
I have known you, and these are the things that you're doing, Abraham. You're commanding and leading your children, and even those within your household, to guard, or what is that other word in English? Keep. You're keeping, guarding my ways. And he does what? To do righteousness. How are you going to know what to do? How do, how do you do righteousness if you don't know what God said? You can't unless you're making it up. And right ruling. So that Yahweh brings to Abraham what he has spoken to him. This is a two-way street. But we're going to see something else here in a little bit that is just, it's pretty incredible. Um, but what I wanted you to notice here was that when he says, this is what is certainly going to happen to Abraham, and that he's going to become a strong and mighty, a great and mighty nation, Israel, powerhouse, Israel. What is, is it 1% of the global population? Is that right? Uh, uh, in, in Israel, uh, the Jewish people in Israel, I think it's, it, it's, have you seen it on a map? I mean, it's, it's small, right? But is anything too hard for God? No. And he says that this will be the truth, that it will be a great and mighty nation. Is it just great in size or importance? Importance. And for all those that are truly following God, yes, and size too. We'll get to that in a little bit. I've got a note here for you. I'm not going to read it. I put that on here for you for you to read. Take that home and look at that there in the middle of the page. But I want to keep going so that I don't get bogged down because there's a lot of stuff here. So then you move from that to the story, the Sodom and Gomorrah story. In chapter 19, this is where we have the Sodom and Gomorrah story. So get the picture here. Abraham's just been circumcised. God shows up. They're standing on a hill, basically. They're looking down into the plain area. Uh, and, and God is like, should I hide from you what I'm about to do? There were, there were three. When they're having this conversation, now it's just God and the other two angel, angelic beings they've left. They've gone to go down there into the Sodom and Gomorrah area. We leave that picture to these angels showing up there in Sodom where Lot is. And Lot is sitting in the gate area uh, where the judges would sit. Uh, normally those that would be in some kind of ruling class. So the two angels show up. So you go to in chapter 19, verse 1. It says, And the two messengers came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose up to meet them, bowed himself with his face to the ground, and he said, Look, please, my masters, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet and rise early and go your way. And they said, No, but let us spend the night in the open square. But he urged them strongly, and they turned into him and came into his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. The first story, you've got Abraham, he's just been circumcised and he's not feeling good. Assuming that's correct, but let's just go with that. He's not feeling good. Part of the reason why they're saying this because he was in the tent, he was in the door of the tent, it was in the heat of the day, he's trying to catch a breeze. 
because he doesn't feel good. And there's some other things, but we'll just, we'll just leave it with that. So you got this story where Abraham, and then what does Abraham do? Abraham runs and gets the calf, and he runs to Sarah. You need to do all this. You need to take fine flour, make bread for him. Uh, here he runs to this his son. Most people believe that it, he ran to Ishmael, said, Ishmael, you need to kill this calf, get this thing ready, slaughter. That's not easy, right? You need to slaughter this thing, kill this thing, prepare it and everything, start cooking. And I'm going to get Sarah. She's going to make some bread. We're going we're gonna to feed these people. We're going to make a feast. Lot does sort of the same thing, but it's missing a few points. One thing you see here is that it says, Lot begs them. He says, no, 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 no. You, you can't stay out here at night. Bad things will happen. Uh, you need to come into my house. Like, no, 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 we're going to stay out here. No, 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 please come into my house. And then look what he says. You know, we're, we're, I'm going to make you a feast. Um, you can wash your feet. And then after you've spent the night, then you can get out of town. <laughs> Abraham goes, Lord, please, if I have found favor in your sight, please don't pass me by. Lot, on the other hand, is like, look, I want to take care of you, but you also need to get out of town. And I'm going to make you some unleavened bread. In other words, we're going to hurry this up. I've, I've even read where some people say, you see, he came at Passover. This is that unleavened bread, and that's why he's serving unleavened bread. And I'm like, whatever. It hasn't started yet. And that's reading into it something that I just don't think is there. But I'm going to leave that one alone. So then we're going to jump down to verse 16. Trust me, we're going to get to some interesting stuff here in just a second. So the angels are there to, to fill in some of the gaps. <clears throat> the, all the men in town and everything, they come and they press against the house because they're saying, we want to have our way with these men. Uh, we want to be abusive to them, so on and so forth. Lot's like, no, please don't do this. Please don't do this. And then the angels strike everybody with blindness. And they are, they're trying to tell Lot, you need to get out of town because God has sent us here, and we're going to rain down fire and destroy everything. Look what it says in verse 16. While he loitered around. The dude is lollygagging around. Why? He really doesn't want to leave. Now, it says that Lot was a righteous man, and everything that was going on there in Sodom was tormenting his soul. But watch this. But at the same time, he didn't want to leave. And he was even delivered from this place one time through war, where he's taken away as captive. Then his uncle comes and delivers him. And then what does he do? He goes back. Then the angels show up and say, you know what? God's about to rain down fire. You need to get out of Dodge. Get out of here. And he's just loitering around. Uh, he, he's, he's hanging out because he just really doesn't want to go. It says literally, uh, the men took hold of his hand and his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters, Yahovah having compassion on him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. They had to drag him out of town. Lot goes and talks to his daughter's Fiancés, they think he's joking, don't even really listen to him. He's trying to figure out what to do. He won't get out of town. The angels have to drag him out. Look at verse 17. And it came to be when they had brought them outside 
that he said, escape. This is the angel telling Lot, you need to escape for your life. You need to run for your life. Don't look behind you or stay anywhere in the plain. Don't stay down here with all of these cities. Escape to the mountains lest you be consumed. What do you think they were really saying? Go back where you came from, dude. You're, you're, you've lost everything. You had so much that you and Abraham couldn't keep your, your herds together. Now you're down here and we just drug you and your two daughters and your wife out. That's all you got. Don't stay here. Get out. And what does Lot say? Oh, no. That's what he says. No. Oh, no. Yahovah. That ain't happening. Really? God just drug you out of town and said, I'm fixing to burn this city and everything around here. You need to get back to the mountains and save your life. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. Then look in verse 22, it says, hurry, escape there. So what does he say? Please let me go over here to this, this town. It's just a little town, and I can make it there before you do what you're going to do. Lot is dictating the time schedule. These angels said, you need to go to the mountains because we're, this is what we're about to do. And then Lot steps in and starts basically telling God what God is going to do. He's talking to the angels, but he's like, no, 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 no. Let me get over here because I, I can't make it to the mountains before then. I'm, I'll die. What a knucklehead. And so they said, okay, hurry and escape there. Look at this. For I am not able to do any deed until you arrive there. The angels were limited on what they could do as long as Lot was there. Why? Because Abraham already had that discussion with God because he knew where his family was down there in Sodom and Gomorrah. If there's at least 10, will you destroy the whole place? Because he knows. <clears throat> this angel, these angels, they were limited by God, and we're going to see here in just a second why. Verse 23. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zeor, which is the name of this town. And Yahovah rained sulfur and fire on Sodom and Amorah, or we call it Gomorrah, from Yahovah out of the heavens. Did you know that they have found Sodom and Gomorrah? Literally. Google it. You can, and literally fire and, and, I mean, brimstone, sulfur embedded. I mean, you can see where the houses and the buildings were. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, and it says, so he overthrew those cities and all the plain, except for this one little town, and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. This is where you're going to find why, the only reason why Lot and his family are spared. Verse 29, thus it came to be when Elohim, God, destroyed the cities of the plain, that Elohim, what? Remembered Abraham. This is the only reason why he had a limited response. He says he remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. 
It's because he remembered Abraham. It was because of his relationship with Abraham that he said, okay, even though this guy is down here and he really wants to stay there, and it gets even worse. Um, you know, they, they, I don't, we don't have time to chase it, you know, but they go into this one city. They're in a town, right? They entered this town of Zeor. And Lot's wife looks back and turns into the pillar of salt. Uh, and then it says that his daughters thought they were the only ones left on the earth. And so they get daddy drunk. And then they get impregnated by daddy. Which is where you get the Moabites and the Ammonites. Okay? And I'm going, well, that was a lie because you're in a town. I mean, you went to the town it didn't get totally destroyed, and they, you know you're not the only people on the earth for crying out loud. So why would they do that? Because they had been influenced from where they were living. That same mindset got in their head in the same way it got into Lot's head, the same way it influenced Sarah, I mean, uh, his, uh, Lot's wife. Uh, it was, in other words, so dysfunctional, unbelievable. But it says, but God remembered Abraham, therefore he spared Lot uh, from that destruction. This is absolutely amazing. So you get to <clears throat> chapter 20. So the Sodom and Gomorrah story happened right after God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm going to come back in a year during the time of life and Sarah's going to have a child. Right? And we already decided that that takes nine months. Then you have the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Abraham is seeing this because it says he's looking and he's seeing the smoke coming. After all of this, in chapter 20, it says, And Abraham set out from there to the land of the south, and he dwelt between Kodesh and Sur and stayed in Gerar. And Abraham said concerning Sarah his wife, She's my sister. Really? We thought you already figured that out with the Egypt thing. You got it straightened out. God shows up, tells you what he's going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. You plead for Lot. You see the smoke. You travel from there. And then what do you do? Out of fear for your own skin, again, you lie about your wife and she's captured again. This woman had to be just drop dead, knocked out gorgeous. Seriously, it's happened twice, and now she's 90. She's 89 years old when this one happens. And they see her and like, yeah, Abimelech, you want this one. And they go get her. Verse 2, it says, And Abraham said concerning Sarah's wife, She's my sister. And Abimelech, sovereign of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, just like what happened in Egypt. But Elohim came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, See, you're a dead man. He goes, I'm fixing to kill you. Why he didn't say that to Abraham, I don't know. But he calls to Abimelech and says, dude, I'm about to kill you and everybody else here. Why? Why is that so important? Because what God has planned through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Yeshua, everything is contingent on what's about to happen because he said, I'm swearing this. This is what's going to happen with 
Sarah with you, not Abimelech. So where do you, who do you think whispered in Abraham's ear, Susan, you should, like you said before when you were talking, Abraham, you should be real scared right now. After everything he has seen and done, he still failed. Can anybody here relate? I'm glad these stories are in here because it gives me hope for me. If God can use these messed up people, maybe he can do something with me. Anybody here other than me make just tons of mistakes? Say things, do things you wish you could erase. You're like, God, I'm hoping up there you hit that delete button on that one. Right? So he comes to him in a dream, says, See, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she's a man's wife. However, Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Yahovah, well, look at this. This is amazing. Yahovah, would you slay a righteous nation also? Are you seeing that? The flip side of that coin was Abraham going, God, will you, will you, will you wipe the whole nation out even if there's only 10 righteous there? Even if everybody else is unrighteous, what about the 10 righteous? Will you kill the 10 righteous because of the multitude of unrighteous? Now you got Abimelech going, will you kill the whole nation of righteous people because of one mistake? It's the exact opposite of what Abraham was talking to God about. Now you've got Abimelech saying the exact opposite thing. Okay, but I didn't know Abraham lied. Are you going to kill all of us because of what he did? Because of this one, will you kill everybody, this whole group of people? He doesn't do that. Um, Abimelech uh, comes back to Abram. You lied, blah, blah. Abram goes, well, only sort of. You see, she is my dad's daughter, but not my mom's daughter. So she's really only my half-sister. Anybody ever do that dumb stuff? You know, you just play with words. You know, well, she really is my sister, I just didn't tell you she was also my wife. Um, Sounds like American politics, doesn't it? So that happened. Listen to me. I think that happened. It had to have happened. Look at this. Within three months of the Sodom and Gomorrah story and God showing up and talking. It's only been three months for crying out loud. How would I know that? Well, because in verse in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, And Yahovah visited Sarah as he had said, and Yahovah did for Sarah as he had spoken. So Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the appointed time of which Elohim had spoken. You get down to verse 5, and it says, And Abraham was 100 years old when his son Yitzhak was born to him. It's only been one year. It's been one year from the time when the angels show up till the time that Yitzhak or Isaac is born. Folks, that means that from that moment when God and Abraham are having the conversation and the moment when Abraham lies about his sister to Abimelech 
and lets his wife be taken a second time, basically into a harem. It's been three months. Can you say short memory problem? And this isn't even from a young believer. He's had time, and he's messed up late in life with his wife, who was supposed to give birth to the promised child. Am I the only one here that's going to say, dummy? I mean, really? Right? Isn't that not the most ridiculous thing you can... It's only been three months. I thought I had a short memory problem. So look at verse 6. It says, And Sarah said, Elohim has made me laugh, and everyone who hears of it laughs with me. She's saying, This laughter that I had, and watch this, and she thought that Hagar was laughing at her because she was barren. And now she's saying, so now I have this son, basically means laughter. And God is saying that now the world is going to laugh with me because of this promised child. Aren't we even laughing and celebrating because this did happen? The Messiah came through this. The people of Israel came through this to prove that God is God and the Messiah and us being grafted into this. It's absolutely beautiful. And then look what it says. Uh, And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Yitzhak. And Abraham was 100, verse 5, And Abraham was 100 years old when his son Yitzhak was born to him. And Sarah said, Elohim has made me laugh. And everyone who hears of it laughs with me. Jump down to verse 32, because there's a lot of other stuff in there. Verse 32, it says, Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Now, who is this? This is back with Abimelech. Abimelech shows back up and goes, There's really something going on between you and God, right? Because he showed up and said, He's about to kill me and everybody else because of her. All of a sudden, and I mean, dude, sorry, but you are old. And she just had a baby? Are you kidding me? Uh, And she lived through that? Are you kidding me? Uh, I mean, I know she's pretty, but she's 90. Uh, That's not supposed to be happening. Uh, It's supposed to be too hard And so Abimelech comes and says, listen, I want you to make a treaty with me, and I want you to be nice to me. I mean, hey, I was nice to you, right? I gave you all this stuff. I want you to be nice. And they they do make a treaty. They make a covenant. Abimelech rose with Picol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the, hmm, yeah. They returned back to the land of the Philistines. Been a pain in the neck all along, right? Does Gaza sound familiar? Okay, Um, and then look what it says here. This is fascinating. I highlighted it for you. It says, and he planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, or Beersheba. And there he called on the name of Yehovah, the everlasting El, the everlasting God. Why would he plant a tamarisk tree there in Beersheba with this covenant that's connected to 
Sarah giving birth to this promised child. This is me, I think. I repeat this. I think. In other words, this is just my opinion. You can take it for whatever it's worth. I think Abraham understood that this is the promised child. We're going to be a light to the nations. He's going to do this incredible thing. Um, I, think he's make, I think he's making a statement of through this child, we're going to make it back into the garden. Remember the tree of life that we couldn't eat? I don't think he's calling it that. But there's something about him planting this tree there in Beersheba, and he ends up going back there. And this is where he's planning on living. This is where, I'm, this is where it's going to be. This is where it's going to happen. Everything's going to happen right here. I think that maybe Abraham thought that Isaac was the hope to restore earth back to Eden. Technically, he would have been correct. Because technically, the Messiah would come through that lineage and he would restore everything. He would reverse everything that's been happening and he would be bringing us back there and eventually back into that garden on a grand scale. Turn the page with me. So now we're going to have the story of uh, throughout, throughout the rest of that and in verse, uh, in chapter, yeah, in chapter 21 um, and then <clears throat> into chapter 22 is where you're going to have this story about Yitzhak and offering up Isaac. This is where it all comes together and it's absolutely, it's mind-boggling to me. So you get to chapter 22, and it says, because you have to understand this chronological order of what's happening. So in chapter 22, it says, and it came to be after these events, after all of that that's happened, now it's been years. It came to be after all of those events that Elohim, God, he tries or tests Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. that sound familiar? And he said, take your son. Now, your only son, Yitzhak. You see, God is now being specific. Because Abraham has more than one son, doesn't he? So Abraham, now I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, you know, the one you love. Remember, it's, it's kind of like going you, to show you how much you're also hinging on this, as am I. You planted this tree, and now you got this young lad, um, and I want you to take him, and I want you to take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I command you. And Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Yitzhak his son. And he split the wood for the, burning, for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which Elohim had commanded him. And on the third day, does that sound familiar? On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from a distance. So Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey while, I, the, while the boy and I go over there and worship and come back to you. How many of you here <clears throat> have grown up believing that, I, that Isaac was probably, I don't know, 12, 13 years old? 
It's because of this English word here where they're saying the word boy, or in some of your translations might say lad. Uh, chances are he was in his 30s. We'll get into that even more next week, but he was probably in his 30s when this happened. Um, and it's going to take three days. Anybody here ever get a sore or a splinter or whatever, and you're like, I need to get this out, and I need to get it out, like, I need, I need to do this and do it now, right? I just had that happen, and I know I talk about this a lot, you know, but we're raising sheep, and I had the grand opportunity of taking three, and up, three of them to the butcher. Yeah, this is not, this is not fun. It's just, it's just not fun. Part of raising animals and the reason for raising them and all that, and you know, and, uh, and, and I went, you know what, Paul? Get up and just get this done because it's killing you just thinking about it. So I was like, I just wanted to get up and just you know, get it done, get it over with, you know, take them there. That's why they're going to do it. Uh, you know, and then when I get it, it's going to be meat when I get it. You know, I won't, you know, I'm not going to have to try, to try to make this connection, right? Because it's, it's not fun, right? I got some of y'all already looking at me with these sad eyes like, that's just, that's horrible, right? Okay, but can you imagine for three, yeah, for three days, and it's your son that you've waited your whole life for, and now you're over 100 years old. You're not 30. You're not 60. You're not 62 like me. You're not dealing with sheep. You're dealing with your son that you're hinging the glory of God on the restoration of mankind, that God is doing something miraculous that you can't even wrap your brain around yet. And God just said, I need you to take him up on this mountain. I need you to kill him. And what it says here that Abraham, he just gets up and does it. And then what does he do? He even splits the wood. It doesn't say that he even questions God at this point. Maybe he did finally learn with that Abimelech thing. I'm thinking that Sarah had a few choice words with him about it. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but they became extremely dysfunctional. Extremely. It, it was pretty messed up. So, uh, he, three days. It says here that he cuts the wood and then they travel. On the third day, God shows up and he goes, okay, me and my son, this to Abraham, he was a lad, right? Right? Y'all still with me? Y'all not freaking out over the sheep, are you? Okay, you are? Okay, I'm sorry. But maybe it brings it, brings it home. He's going to take Isaac, and he's going to offer up Isaac. What do you say? I, well, we can tell that there wasn't a lot of conversation going on. And they're going to travel up this mountain. Who's carrying the wood? Isaac is. God goes, now, Abram, Abraham, I need you to take your son. You know, the promised child, the type of Messiah, for us reading backwards into this, the one you're hinging all your hopes on, and I need you to, you know, Isaac, not Ishmael, not anybody else, but Isaac, that one. And I need you to take that one up on this mountain, and I need you to offer him as a burnt offering to me. 
And Abraham just, okay, got it. I'm going to do it. They're traveling up to fill in some of these gaps a little bit. It hits Isaac. And he goes, Father, pause. My father, (laughs) I see the wood, the fire and the stuff. Where's the sheep? Where's the animal? Abraham goes, God will provide. Isaac is figuring this out. I'm going up here. I'm following my dad. Isaac's in his 30s. Isaac hasn't experienced everything Abraham has. You have to keep this stuff in context to get into the head here. But Isaac figures it out. He follows him anyhow, trusting in his father. And he puts him on, he binds him, he lays out the wood, binds him. He's 30. Abraham's, he's in his 30s, maybe about 30, 33, 35 years old, maybe as old as 37. If you calculate some of this stuff out, there's a way to do that. Uh, But the bottom line, he's in his 30s. Who else was in his 30s? Yeshua was in his 30s, right? Um, Isaac had to willingly allow himself to be bound on the wood. Who else willingly laid his life down for us? Yeshua did, right? Um, There is a massive difference between Isaac, Yitzhak, and and Jesus, but we'll get to that in just a second. And so... But Abraham said something before he left. He goes, I'm going to go up there with them, and I'm going to worship, but we're coming back. The only thing we can read into that is, he either knew that God would stop him or that God would raise him from the dead. But he has become convinced by this time in his life, finally, I don't have to worry about Abimelech, I don't have to worry about Pharaoh. I don't even have to worry about God showing up and telling me to kill him. I don't have to worry about my life. I'm not going to worry about anything because I know that God is God. Amen? He has finally figured this out, and he's like, so I'm going to go up here, and this is going to happen. I'm going to do what God told me to do, but I'm telling you, we're coming back down. Now, folks, that's faith. That's real faith. So he does it. He almost kills Isaac, Yitzhak. He is about to plunge the knife, and at this point, God doesn't just show up. He yells from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, whoa, 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 dude, whoa, stop. (laughs) Abraham looks, he sees this ram. He takes the ram, he offers the ram. And then in verse 15, of this chapter 22. Look at this. I highlighted it. You really want to pay attention to this. Once again, and if you've read my book, this is why some of this stuff should start to like pop out at you. It says, and the messenger of Yahovah called to Abraham a second time from the heavens and said, who by myself, I have sworn declares 
Yahovah. Can I get an amen, somebody? <laughs> Y'all going to make me go Pentecostal on you, right? I mean, that's powerful, right? He says, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I shall certainly bless you. I shall certainly increase your seed as the stars of heaven and the sandwiches on the seashore and let your seed possess the gates of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And I want you to see something here. He says, you've obeyed my voice, but the premise of all this is I am swearing I'm going to do this by the sheer fact that I exist. In other words, it, at this point, this promise is unconditional. He doesn't say, I'm going to do this if your seed does this and this and this and this and this. He tells them later, if you do this and this and this and this, I will kick you out of the land, which we've been over all that, right? But he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm swearing this by myself, by my existence, that I'm going to do what I'm declaring I'm going to do. Folks, I don't know if you understand how powerful and fundamental it is in understanding that so that you understand your Bible. This is why anti-Semitism is saying that God isn't God. That's why it's demonic. That's why Satan hates the Jewish people so much that he will influence people to murder them, to try to wipe them off the face of the earth. Why? Because God said, I said it, I declared it by my existence, by the sheer fact that I'm here, and I will do this mighty thing. And when I do it, everybody's going to know that I am the God of all gods. Folks, that's some good news because God said he's going to do it. He's been doing it. He did it through Yeshua. He also did it in 1948. And he started a process that's still not finished. And he also said, I will cause Jerusalem to become a cup of trembling to the world. And it is. And he said, and I will bring all nations there to do business with them because they divided my land which is exactly what happened. The whole Palestinian, the British mandate, all that stuff, they divided it before they even set up the nation. And they're still dividing it. It's happening. Folks, don't let that scare you. What it says is God is God. He said he would do it. He's been doing it. And he will accomplish what he said. That's good news. But I want you to see here, we said all the way back, with Abraham, I am swearing I'm going to do this by the sheer fact that I exist. Does he exist? Can anything overthrow the existence of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the universe, the father of us all? No. So is he going to do what he said he's going to do? Yes. And that is powerful, and that is extremely good news. Was Abraham perfect? No. And I want you to see something that's really fascinating now. So they had that event. Abraham stops. Can you imagine Isaac? Whew. But there's a detail not in the following verses. Because when you get to verse 19, it says, Abraham returned. 
What does it not say? It doesn't say that Isaac came back with him. It says, Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Can you imagine, though, now, everybody says, what faith Isaac had? Did he have faith? Yeah, he was willing to die. But at the same time, he's looking at his own father about to plunge a knife into his throat or chest. Cut his throat. That's not a good experience. Right? I mean, anybody ever, everybody experienced a dysfunctional family. It, maybe you don't want to raise your hand on that one. Uh, can you imagine? I mean, Isaac is in his 30s, and his dad nearly killed him because of his dad's faith. You have to remember that. God didn't show up and tell Isaac, hey, by the way, I know you're the promised child. You know, you're the, you're the promised boy. Um, don't worry, I got this. Um, I'm going to tell your dad to kill you, but he's really not going to kill you. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture where God said anything to Isaac. Abraham goes and tells his boy, you know, we're, we're going to go and worship. Okay. And we're going to do a sacrifice. Okay. I hate to tell you this, but you're the sacrifice. Ooh, okay. Um, it doesn't say that Isaac came back with him. There's more to that story, but obviously we don't have time tonight because I want to try to tie some stuff together. So you have to come back next week. You want to try to look at some of these things. It's absolutely mind-boggling. But to, so that you understand something, I want you to see this parallel, uh, and then we're going to try to tie it together. In Luke chapter 1, so remember we've said this many, many times that God said, I am God, there's none other like me. I'm telling you the end of the matter from the very beginning. And we've been going over this stuff where we see so many times these shadow pictures these small portrayals of things that keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger in, in size and scope and meaning. Here you're going to see this again where in verse uh, 30 of Luke chapter 1. It says, And the messenger said to her, Do not be afraid, Miriam, for you have found favor with Elohim. And see, you shall conceive in your womb and shall give birth to a son and call his name Yeshua. I know I'm not pronouncing that correct according to the spelling. Joel, forgive me, but this is the way I say it. It's, I don't think it's Yahashua, but that's, yeah, that's another thing. Anyways, so verse 32, it says, And he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and Yahovah Elohim shall give him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob, or Yaakov, forever, and there shall be no end to his reign. And Miriam said to the messenger, That's not possible. Um, not, this can't happen. How's this going to be? I don't know. I haven't been, I'm not with a man. I'm engaged, but I, this is not going to happen. And the messenger said to her, the set-apart spirit, the Holy Spirit, he's going to come upon you, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. And for that reason, the set-apart one born of you shall be called Son, the Son of God. And see, Elisheba, or Elizabeth, uh, your relative, she also has conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month to her who was barren, 
Because why? Here it is again. Because with God, no matter is impossible. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is out of God's reach. He can do anything. And here's what I want us to see. Isaac becomes a picture, a shadow, if you will, of Yeshua that's coming. Abraham becomes a picture of a man of faith following God, even when it goes against human reason, where before he failed at least twice, when his human reason came up with an answer for a problem God had that God didn't have. And he loses his wife to two different kings, if you will, because of her looks, because he wouldn't stand on faith. Yet God still used him to bless the world, and he's called a man of faith, the father of our faith. Does that not give you some encouragement that if God can take a frail, fragile, imperfect human being, call him out of nothing, out of nowhere, and do something miraculous with him. And even though he's been doing that with him, and he still makes mistakes, that God could use him. Folks, that is so encouraging. In our sphere, you know what we want? We want everything perfect and pristine. No mistakes. Right? We want everything to be perfect. We want our relationship with God to be perfect and to be perfect all the time. Well, yeah, we want it to be perfect, but is it? And when it's not, does that mean God will not use you or love you? No. If we will repent and turn to Him and keep coming back. Yes, He's the, he's the God of infinite, if you will, chances if we will just come back to Him. If we will return, but it's also a matter of choice. We have to be willing to follow him and go back to him, or we can choose to be like Lot and go, I don't want to go back to Abraham. I don't want to go back on the mountain. I don't want to go back up there. I want to stay down here and lose everything, even your own dignity. If God can use Abraham and use this family that, actually become somewhat dysfunctional and use him to bless the world, then folks, he can use you too. And God takes this picture and says, not only am I doing that, but I can take all of these imperfections and still weave it together to accomplish what I want to accomplish. Meaning, you can't mess up God's plan. Did God know that Abraham would make mistakes? Of course he did. Did God use that in his plan to still accomplish his goal? Of course he did. He needed Abraham to be right at the right place, to learn all the right lessons. He allowed him to do whatever it was that he was going to do so that when it came time for this, that God could paint the best picture ever about the Messiah coming. Sometimes God has to let us just go through some of our stuff so we can learn a lesson. Not because He's just trying to fix our lives. 
so that we don't do that anymore, but he's teaching us to be closer and closer to him so that, watch this, that we will trust him even when human logic says something else. That we will trust him and his word even over human logic. Because there's nothing too hard for God. As a matter of fact, I think God loves doing the impossible. To prove that He is God, that He loves you, that He wants to have this personal relationship with you, and that He's willing to even cross eternity and enter into time and space, take on flesh, down the cross so that he could get, we could get back into this relationship with him and then follow him in such a way that we could bring glory and honor to his name. Folks, that's what it's all about is bringing glory and honor to his name because there's nothing impossible for the God that we serve, nothing. He puts everything together right at the right time on a grand scale, globally, and even for you. Even for you. And for you. We could all go through these lists, even on how some of us even came to know each other and we come here and learning things from God's Word and how God's moved in our lives. Um, he can do it on a glo global scale, but He can also do it on an individual scale. You know why? Because he loves you and he's intimately involved with you. And he wants you to understand that he wants to do magnificent, powerful things through you. And you know what the most powerful thing you can do? You can live your life in such a way that you can give the devil himself a black eye. You can profess through the way you live your life, the way you teach and raise your kids, the way you treat your family, the way you treat your business partner, the way you treat your employer and employee, the way you treat your neighbor, the way you treat people that don't believe like you. We can live our lives in such a way that everyone will know that there is one God one way, one salvation. And that he's bringing everything in all the nations back underneath his reign and rule. What could be more powerful and more meaningful than that? Making a million bucks, winning the lotto, not knowing what to do with $1.6 billion. Let me try to figure it out. I mean, what, what would be more grand than glorifying the King of Kings? Doing battle with his mortal enemy and saying, you can't touch this. My name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you can't touch this because I'm a child of the King. And as a matter of fact, you need to leave before I punch you. Do you understand that we should not be scared of him? Do you understand that? Y'all going to make me do this by myself. We don't have to be scared of the devil, his demons, or anything else. 
Folks, we don't even have to be scared of the one world government, although it's coming. I don't think we should bow down to it. I don't think we should be silent. I think you should get out and vote. I think we should make our voices heard. But at the same time, there's a war coming and it's global. I plan on being on God's side and standing on His Word and not on popular opinion. Because our God is God and He loves you. He loves you so much that He brought you here. And here we are in this little fellowship and we have a chance to partner with a guy in Israel, lives in Israel, ministering to people in Israel, bringing people to the Messiah. I thought that was supposed to happen in a church running four or 500 people. We're in Roy City. A little spot over here. And we get to be connected with somebody in Israel personally. You need to think about that. Personally? And help somebody actually do ministry in Israel? Leading people to Jesus? Telling people how to pray and pointing them to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Really? Yeah. So you don't have to just send your money to some missionary board and it just gets to some nebulous ministry. I'm not saying that's not good, but here we've got a guy sitting in our midst here that's from Israel, uh, and you got a chance in just a few minutes to go shake his hand and say, wow, I think that's pretty cool. But you and I didn't plan that. I had to get invited to go to a fellowship. Sitting in the, I was nearly in the back row. Um, the only time we ever went there, I think. That one time. For a guy to be over there from Israel for me to see him, and they, they went, oh, that's right, he is here today. Well, we didn't know that. Maybe that's why you're here. I was like, evidently. Um, and then here he is tonight, and we've had a chance to, to help and be a part of his ministry. I just think it's really cool because we serve this mighty, massive, loving, incredible God. 